And we're going to, we're going to turn to the Bible together. Um, we're going to turn to the book of Acts. Um, and I was thinking this week, it's amazing how much you learn um, by watching other people. Um, when you think over your life, how many things you've learned just by watching others. You know, I, I, I learned to cook by watching, you know, so you watch Delia Smith cooking her nice pavlova. And, uh, you know, you learn to cook a pavlova by watching her. Um, or, you, you know, you learn to drive, or you learn to whatever it is. Um, or you're at a dinner with too much cutlery, you've always done that right. You've so much cutlery, you don't know which bit to use. So what you do is you just watch someone else. You watch them and do what they do. And they don't know what they're doing either. But as long as they do it confidently, you sort of all muddle through and no one actually cares. But you, we watch, okay? Watching people is powerful. And that's true in terms of being a Christian. Actually, we learn a lot by watching other people. And that's why I, I really want to encourage us to consider the importance of biographies and the importance of listening to stories of Christians over the years who have followed Jesus and have loved him and have served him through their lives and, and watching their life, examining their life and learning from them, watching how to do it, learning how to do it from them. I wonder when you last read a good Christian biography, I, I really want to encourage you to do that. You know, it's the summer, perhaps you can have a little bit of time away at some point. Why not get a biography and read of someone, learn from their life? But what I thought we'd do um, for these four Sundays in August is look at someone, watch someone together, watch someone's life. Um, we're going to look at the life of Stephen. Uh, Stephen's a character in the Bible. Uh, you find him in Acts chapter 6 and 7. He only gets two chapters of the Bible, but there's a lot about him. And what I want to do over the next few Sundays is examine the, the life of Stephen carefully and learn together from him. Now, let me just deal with this. I think it may be that you say, well, why would we want to look at Stephen? Why don't we look at Jesus? I mean, surely Jesus is better than Stephen, right? So why, why wouldn't we just spend the next four Sundays looking at Jesus? I thought that's what we normally did at Globe Church. Well, here's the tricky thing, right? Actually, as we look at Stephen, what we will find ourselves doing is looking through Stephen and seeing Jesus. Because what you discover as you read about this man, Stephen, and it is an extraordinary account that we're going to read, what you discover is that his life echoes and reflects Jesus. And what you see in Stephen is a man who is living out Jesus in the world. And so we're going to examine the life of this man, Stephen. We're going to examine it in detail, and we're going to see how does the reality of Jesus manifest itself in someone's life. And we're going to pick up loads of echoes of how Stephen pictures and, and reflects the life of Jesus. But like any good biography, I've got four chapters in, in I mean, not every good biography has four chapters, but this one has four chapters um, over the four Sundays. Chapter one is going to be the times in which Stephen lived. That's today. That's the uh, first chapter. Second chapter, the power by which Stephen spoke. The third chapter, the sermon that Stephen preached. 
He probably preached more than one, but we've got one cracker recorded in Acts chapter 7, which we'll look at in two weeks' time. And then we're going to think about the death Stephen faced. Okay, so it's times, power, sermon, death. That's the sort of structure of where we're heading for the next few weeks. And we're going to discover a lot about what it means to live as a Christian. Now, let me, let me just give you a slight heads up. This afternoon, we're not going to do a lot of looking at Stephen, having said all of that, <laughs> because we've got to set the times in which he lived. We've got to understand what was going on at the time when he lived. So we will touch on Stephen, but next week we'll be seeing much, much more about him. But let's think about the times then in which Stephen lived. We're going to read um, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. You've got it on your sheets, um, and if you're watching at home, it will appear on your screen. Um, So let's read Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So here's the summary, then, of what's going on as Stephen first appears on the scene. In those days, we're told, chapter 6, verse 1, when the number of disciples was increasing. Well, that sounds good, right? I mean, that's, that's that's positive. Things seem to be growing. The numbers seem to be getting bigger. Generally speaking, getting bigger as a church is a good thing. Numbers going up is exciting. And it is interesting. Sometimes we we kind of um, say, oh, numbers don't matter. You know, we shouldn't be obsessed about numbers. We shouldn't worry about numbers. Actually, the book of Acts really is quite interested in numbers. The book of Acts says that there were 3,000 people who became Christians on the day of Pentecost. And then it says another 5,000 people joined them. And then a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So actually, numbers do matter. And this was days, Stephen lived in days when things were really moving. When we read about this church that Stephen is part of, we're not talking about a small church of 50 people. We're not even talking about a medium-sized church of 200 people. We're talking about thousands of people in this church in Jerusalem. So things are, getting, things are getting going, and there's a real buzz about that and excitement, okay? I mean, surely you can feel that. That would be exciting to be part of. And the reason that's happening is because that's what Jesus has said would happen. So the, the book of Acts starts um, back in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus leaving earth, returning to his Father, having come, died on a cross, risen again, ascends to his Father, And he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That really sets the agenda for the whole book of Acts. The book of Acts is how the message of Jesus is going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's what it's all about. And at this point, we're still in Jerusalem. It hasn't gone beyond Jerusalem yet. It's still there. The church is all in Jerusalem. And those are the days. It's growing. And most of us, I think, would want to say, let's pray that Globe Church would grow. Let's pray that many churches in London would grow. Let's pray for growth. But the problem is um, that growing churches face threat. Now, uh, on your sheets, um, there are six principles that we're going to pull out um, of these few verses that we've looked at this afternoon, just trying to understand how it can help us to think about church. Six principles. One of the things you have to be careful with Acts. Acts is a little bit tricky because um, a helpful little phrase about Acts is that it is descriptive but not prescriptive. In other words, it tells us what happened, but doesn't necessarily mean that we should therefore do exactly the same. So they appointed seven people. Ooh, that's what we should do. We should find seven people and appoint seven, because that's what they did. That's not how the book of Acts works. It is telling us what they did, but not necessarily prescribing what we must then do. Instead, what we're supposed to do as we read the book of Acts is to look out for the principles that are at work. Look out for those things that we can learn about what it means to be a genuine, authentic, apostolic Jesus-filled, spirit-powered church. And that's what I'm going to try and do this afternoon, show you six principles of how that we can learn about being a church. And the first one is that growing churches face threat. You see, much as we love growth, and we've got to face up to this, right? Much as we love growth, it's also really painful. So think of a child growing a new tooth. Most of us don't remember this. In fact, probably none of us, because it happens quite early, doesn't it, really? Anyway, um, growing a new tooth is painful. Growth hurts. And in a church, we tend to think that growth should be exciting and wonderful, and it should be like a fantastic roller coaster of, of excitement, but reality can feel very different. And what you discover in this church that is growing, yes, it's absolutely growing. People are following Jesus. People are turning to him. You discover that there's a problem. And you read the problem in verse 1. It's in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So within this church that is massively growing and massively exciting, suddenly a big problem comes up. And you might think, well, it seems a bit mundane, doesn't it? Some widows kind of complaining about their food distribution and all this. That doesn't seem quite as exciting as the gospel growing and gospel being preached and people turning to Jesus. I'm not getting my food. It seems a bit weird, doesn't it? It sort of jars. But actually what is happening is summed up in that um, word overlooked. They are being overlooked. There are people within the church who are being overlooked. That's an ugly word, isn't it? Overlooked. 
To overlook means to not notice someone. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you're talking to them, but they're constantly looking over your shoulder to, to see what's going on over there? Yeah, 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 whatever. They're not paying you attention. They're not noticing you. They're more interested. They're overlooking you to see what's going on over there. And you can feel invisible. That's what's happening in this church, this massively growing church. There is a group who are being overlooked. That happens in churches, right? And it happens particularly as churches grow. When you are a very small church, people tend to be less overlooked. As churches grow, overlooking becomes more of a problem. And my guess is that most of us sitting in this room have experienced this. Probably within Globe Church. Certainly within other churches. You you have that experience where suddenly you feel like you haven't been noticed. Perhaps everyone's been invited to an event, but you weren't invited to go. You, You were sort of missed out. Or perhaps you're not given the attention that someone else is given. Or it can feel, It's really hard, isn't it? That's what's happening within the church um, in Jerusalem. Now, partly, overlooking happens because of carelessness, right? People are accidentally overlooked. In a growing church, people get missed. It just happens, right? It, it's hard to kind of notice everyone, to see everything that's going on. And sometimes people get missed. But there's a hint in Jerusalem that actually things are slightly more sinister. Because the problem that is happening within this church is that there are two groups of widows, and one is being overlooked. And they're described as the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Now, the Hebraic Jews were the ones who spoke Hebrew and lived in Jerusalem or were from Jerusalem. But then there were the ones who were from outside of Jerusalem who spoke Greek, the Grecian Jews. They're both Jews, but their origins are from different places. And it seems that as the church grew bigger, the the, the Jerusalem-based Jews were being favored in the way the food was being distributed. The way the early church worked, we're told back in Acts chapter 4, is that they shared everything in common. So if you just, oh, you haven't got Bibles. Um, It says this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. They were sharing everything they had. And that was great when things were quite small and it was wonderful. It's, oh, this is so exciting. Everything's growing. But suddenly now an issue begins to come up. And things are beginning to come apart at the seams. People are being overlooked. That can happen within churches and it can happen in Globe Church. And so here's the first big principle I want us to think of. In Globe Church, as we think about our church family, where are the places where we're overlooking people? It might be just through carelessness. It might be just through kind of things are too chaotic and, oh man, we just are being useless. But it can also be from something, prejudices that we hold in our hearts. We've talked a lot recently about racism. We've talked a lot about the kind of way that we treat one another. And we must, we must keep working at this. We must keep fighting to not overlook one another. 
look, we will tend to be drawn to the people that we feel most comfortable with. We'll tend to be drawn to the people who speak our language, the people who come from our background, the people who come from our city. Look, if there was 10 people who all grew up in Southampton, that's where I grew up, they'd be my 10, right? Because I'd know them. And I'd, we'd share experience and we'd know stuff. And it would be easy for, that to, for me to drift towards them. So here's our question then. Are we overlooking people? Who are the people that you could be reaching out to? You know, someone was saying to me just yesterday um, that one of the great things, one of the problems of not being able to gather is that you tend to just meet up with the people that you really know. And the lovely thing about actually gathering as a church is that you, you're forced to meet up with the people that you don't necessarily know very well. And so we need to work really, really hard at saying, well, who could I invite over? Who could I get to know? Who could I reach out to so that people aren't overlooked? And let me say to those people who are sitting here or listening who are feeling overlooked, I I, want to say sorry, and I want to say, please mention it. Tell someone. Talk about it. We won't get this right perfectly, but I do want to assure you of this. Jesus never overlooked anyone. He never overlooks people. Just listen to this, okay? Just a couple of minutes, let me tell you about Jesus, right? Here are some examples from the Gospels about Jesus. And if you feel overlooked, if you've ever felt overlooked, listen to this. Jesus saw people. He saw, he saw, he saw them. So you get an example. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Oh, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. When Jesus landed, he saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. He also saw a poor widow who put in two very small copper coins. He saw people. One of the beautiful things about Jesus is that he sees his people. He never overlooks. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Listen, Jesus is not looking over your shoulder trying to see if there's someone else more interesting to talk to, someone else more useful, more gifted, more skilled. He sees you. He sees you. He loves you. He forgives you. He died for you. And he will use you. So here's this threat that comes up within the church, but we need to move on much quicker. <laughs> Let's go. Um, second big principle I want us to see is that threatened churches need the word of God. What do the um, apostles do when they hear, hear complaining? They are a godly bunch. Because when I hear complaining, my automatic reaction is to roll my eyes and go, no, oh, this is moaning, moaning, moaning. Because com- and particularly when the church is bursting at the seams, everything going, they're preaching the gospel, people are becoming Christians, it's all very exciting. 
and then some widows are moaning about their food. Wouldn't it be easy just to go, oh, come on, can't you see everything that's happening? Stop making a fuss. But actually, the, the apostles, they care about this church. Remember, it's a very new church. Most of these guys have only just started following Jesus. They haven't really got a scooby-doo what they're doing. They don't really even know what church is supposed to be about. And so what the apostles do is they gather them all together. They're so wise. And they teach them. And the first thing they teach them is what it would not be right to do. They say, okay, here's the first way that we must not react to this problem. That's what it says in verse 2. The first thing they say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In some ways, that doesn't sound like a very promising start, does it? Oh, great, you've told us what you're not going to do. You're not going to neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. But actually, the reason for that is because what the church needs is the word of God. To abandon the word of God would be to place the church in desperate danger. And these apostles, these early church leaders, knew that. It would be tempting for them to go, fine, let's fix this, okay? Let's, I haven't got time to preach a sermon this week. I'll, I'll go and fix this problem over here. And they run off to go and fight this fire over here. But instead, the apostles know what their role is. They know what the church needs. Without the word of God, there would be no church. Without the word of God, there is no growth. Without the word of God, there is no power. It is only the word of God that brings the church into existence and that sustains and feeds the, word of God, uh, the, the church of God. Remember, look, remember, okay, you've got to remember the power of this word that we're talking about. The trouble is we hear word of God and we think of a book. We've got to think of more than just a book. When we hear the word of God, you've got to think of creation. When God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. That's the word of God. You've got to think of Jesus. He is the word of God. He is the one who's come from God so that we can know God. When you think of the word of God, you've got to think of the Bible as the living word. You've got to think of the word that is unstoppable and powerful. You've got to think of the word of God as that which just keeps on moving. And the apostles say, whatever else we do, we must not abandon this word. So let's get this principle clear, Globe Church. The Word of God is essential to our church family. And therefore, it's really important that you hold us as elders who are responsible for leading this church and hold us to be those who teach this Word, who keep giving out this Word. That is our primary responsibility, and that is what the church needs. And that goes along, verse 4. He, they say, we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, because prayer and the ministry of the word go together. You can only preach as much as you pray. You can only... The word of God is only effective as the power of God takes that word and makes it live. So you don't abandon the word of God. So we need this word, feed on this word, hunger for this word, delight in this word. 
Here's the third principle. Ministry of the word is not the only ministry. You see, at first sight, it might sound like the apostles are basically saying, look, to be perfectly honest, we're very important. And it would not be right for us to wait on tables. No, no, we're well above that. Let's find some other people who can do the menial jobs so that we can get on with doing the important stuff. But that is not what they're saying. Actually, what is being said is that the ministry of the word is essential to the life of the church, but that must go alongside a whole bunch of other ministries which are essential to the life of the church. And you don't play off one against another. All of them are necessary in order for the church to function. It's just a difference of role, not a difference of importance. And so the apostles say to the, to the church, our task is to do this, and therefore we need to find another way to do this. They take the complaint seriously, and they act upon it. They delegate. They come up with a system. This is what growing churches need. Growing churches will tend to be pretty chaotic at the start, but they can't stay chaotic. It is very, very important that growing churches learn to embrace different ministries, to get different people involved, using different people's gifts so that the word of God can continue to flourish and move forward. And so it really matters Different people are deployed into different areas in order that the church can grow. Globe Church needs people who will minister the word and it needs people who will serve in all sorts of other different ways too. So that together we can be the church and we can serve. Now we are getting to Stephen. I realize I haven't actually mentioned Stephen yet. I'm supposed to be watching him. But I'm setting it up. Right Next time it's all Stephen. Fourth thing, by the way, just under that, under ministry, the word is not the only ministry. I think one of the big mistakes that we make is that we elevate word ministry to being the most important ministry. Um, and so we sort of say the most important thing is, is to teach the Bible. They're the most important ones. That is so wrong. We've got to fight against that. Um, teaching the Bible is terrific. But it's no more important than caring for the poor. It's no more important than making sure that the prayer team functions effectively or the PA system works effectively. Because to be perfectly honest, if I'm preaching my heart out and you can't hear it, what good is it anyway? It's no more important than the ministry of live streaming. Because to be honest, I could be preaching my heart out. I don't even know if you're there. You might be. Mark tells me you are, so that's great. But you get my point, right? We need each other, and we've got to stop elevating one uh, um, above others. Um, fourth thing I think we might be on. Um, character matters more than ability and leadership. So look, here's, here's the deal, right? So you've got your, um, here's the issue. Uh, we're going uh, um, to fix this. It's not right for us to neglect the ministry. So here's the plan. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them. 
Notice very clearly, they do not say, get the seven most gifted strategists. They don't say, get the most intelligent. They don't say, get the guys with the best personalities, you know, the ones that everyone likes, you know, the kind of cool ones that everyone kind of gets on with. It's not about qualifications or CVs or achievements. No, you look for the people who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. This is how you appoint leaders within a church. You look for those who are full of the Spirit and full of God's wisdom. Now, we're not going to do a lot more work on that now because that's kind of all of next week's, what we're going to think about next week. Because Stephen, we're told, is full of the Spirit and he's full of wisdom and he's full of faith and he's full of power and he's full of grace. We're told five things that Stephen is full of. We're going to think about all five of those next week and we're going to unpack what that might look like. But for now, I want us to see that character matters more than ability. Do you know, there's been a lot swirling around recently about leadership within the local church. And the tragedy is that there are many examples of people who will abuse positions of power in order to take advantage of others for their own gain. There'll be people who want to build a platform for themselves. There'll be people who want to make an empire, people who want people to follow them. And the only way to avoid that mistake, the only way to avoid that danger is to look for people who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Because people full of the Holy Spirit and people who are full of God's wisdom will be people who lead like Jesus. If leadership within the church was based on ability, then it would mean that only some people could aspire to leadership. Right? Only the able ones could aspire to leadership. But if leadership within the church is based on character, then all disciples can aspire towards leadership as they depend on the Spirit and they grow in God's wisdom. So there's the principle. Let's be people whose characters shine out. And in this group of, you know, was it five, ten thousand people in Jerusalem, these are the seven guys that they picked. They're something about them shone with Jesus, shone with the Spirit of God. I wonder what you're known for. How would people describe you? Well, here's something you could pray. Lord, please make me someone full of the Spirit and wisdom. Make me like Jesus. Give me a character that loves like Jesus. Which brings to the fifth thing, which is that humble service is the nature of ministry. As we think about Stephen, we're going to look at a man who basically is asked to do humble service. That's what it's all about. I spent the um, last, end of last week living in my little brother's house. Very interesting experience. We swapped houses. He came and lived in our flat with his three kids, and we went to live in his house uh, for a few days. And we lived each other's lives for a few days. It was very odd um, and lovely in many ways, particularly the hot tub. But anyway, that's another question. But they have a sign on, the, um, on their kitchen wall that says, what if, they're, they're quite deep thinkers, as you'll see. Uh, what if the hokey cokey is what it's all about? <laughs> they have that question on the wall of their kitchen. If you don't know the hokey cokey, don't worry about it. You've not missed a lot. 
It's a kid's song. Uh, what's that about? Basically, the hokey cokey is not what it's all about. The humble, ser- humble service, that's what it's all about. That's where we got that from. Oh, it's good to preach to real people again. <laughs> oh, we've missed this, haven't we? It's no fun on your own. You have no banter. You just say silly things and you have to delete it and re-record it. No chance of doing that. Anyway, here's right. Here's the issue. These seven people that are listed in Acts chapter 6, they're being appointed not to some glamorous job, not to have their name in lights. They're being appointed to sort out the food for widows. Right? That's the job they're getting. It's not helping them to climb the career ladder. But you see, that is what it means to serve. So that phrase, um, to, to wait on tables, the, the word there, the serving word, is diakonia. It's, it's, the, it's the idea of service. But the interesting thing is it's exactly the same word as the apostles use in verse 4 to talk about the ministry of the word. So whether you are serving widows, their food, or whether you are serving the church, the word of God, it's the same thing. The heart of it is humble service. That's what it's all about. And it has to be that way because that is how Jesus lived. You see, Jesus, even Jesus, the awesome, all-authority, all-power Son of Man, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to diakonia, the same word. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And therefore, at no point do you ever move beyond serving. That's it. You never get to a point of being served, except to be served by Jesus. The thing he calls us into is to serve. I think it's why the apostles so often in their letters describe themselves as servants. There's a guy in London who runs, he's the chief executive of a large, a very large Christian charity. Very prestigious, very you know, well-known guy. He's chief executive, but he always signs his emails not as chief executive, but as chief servant. Because he wants to always remember that's it. We're servants. And therefore, to use the language of ministry to talk about, you know, are you going into the ministry? Sometimes people talk about that in terms of becoming a pastor or something. Are you going into the ministry? Are you doing some ministry? (laughs) That's what we all do. You don't enter the ministry. You're already in it. As soon as you start following Jesus, you start diakoneering. (laughs) That's not the word. That's not good Greek. As soon as you start following Jesus, you start serving. That's, That's it. Because that's what Jesus came to do. And therefore, to be a church who passionately and deeply love to serve, we love to serve. You know, one of the most refreshing things um, about Globe Church is the times when people come and say, what can I do? How can I serve? And it really matters 
that we help each other to serve. One of the most dangerous things I think that we could do as leaders is fail to deploy the church, fail to equip and release the church, fail to turn over responsibility, to become a control freak who wants to hold on to everything, who wants to make sure that I'm in charge of everything is so deadly and dangerous. You trust it, you entrust it, you entrust it. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. He entrusted responsibility over to them. Do you know, I think we have got a lot to learn. I've read Acts chapter 6 this week and it's really convicted me about the things that we need to work on as a church. Ways in which we need God by his spirit to help us to be more like Jesus. Ways in which we all need to be involved in serving. And the fifth principle, uh, the sixth principle is that unity is the key to gospel growth. And so as these guys are appointed, and Stephen, oh there he is, <laughs> welcome, hello Stephen. Stephen is appointed, he's listed first, and he's described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. As this band of seven believers takes on this responsibility to serve in this way, and they're from all over the place, they're from different places, different backgrounds, there's, a, there's wisdom in, in this appointment as they're presented to the apostles, do you notice how all the disciples are involved? It's not that the apostles just take all the control and say, right, tell you what, we'll choose some people. You, 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 and you. No, the whole church. Gather the whole church. Everybody be involved. Because the principle is that together we do this. This is not something that's us. and It's, us, it's all of us together. They gather all the disciples. It pleases the whole group. The church is involved in choosing these people. And the result is that the gospel continues to grow. And so what happens at the start, which would have been a threat because growing is painful, actually becomes the means for the gospel to grow and to spread. So when things begin to creak in Globe Church, and when things begin to fall apart, and let's face it, we're not anywhere near 5,000 yet, so it starts creaking a lot earlier than that. Actually, there is an opportunity there for the gospel to take hold and for the gospel to go forward. We don't need to panic. We don't need to freak. We don't say, ah, it's all falling apart. We just need to deal with it together as a church, expressing Christ-likeness so that the gospel will continue to spread. So there's six principles which kind of, I hope, set the scene, ready for us to kind of really focus in on Stephen next week to think about the power of Stephen. But for this week, here's the application questions. Here are the things I just want you to think about. Are there people that we're overlooking? Who could you show love to this week? Who could you notice this week? How could you have conversations where you really engage with people this week? Who are we overlooking? Let's be serious about that. Let's be passionate about the word of God. It matters. We need it. Let's care about character. Let's ask that God would form in us godly character. Let's love to be humble servants. That's what it's all about. And let's pray that the church would grow as we express that unity. Guys, why don't we pray together? Um, and then we're going to praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the amazing way that your gospel is powerful, uh, your word is so powerful, that word that brought light out of darkness is the same power today that can change and transform us. 
And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be the church you want us to be. Help us to be a church full of humble servants. Father, please might we all be ministers. Please might we all be servants. Father, teach us, we pray. And we ask that your gospel would go forward and that our church would grow as we trust in you. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.